Gerald Nachman has covered theater, movies, cabaret, and television for newspapers and magazine and has written three books we've talked about on this show. Right here on our stage tonight, Ed Sullivan's America. Seriously Funny, The Rebel Comedians of the 1950s and 1960s. And starting last week and continuing this week, Raised on Radio. On last week's program, we talked a bit about Amos and Andy, Jack Benny, George Burns, and The Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger was a very famous radio program and later a television show. Had fairly simple storylines, however. There's another classic western we need to talk about that uh, listeners will no doubt have heard of because it was also a famous and long-running television show, Gunsmoke. It was a more adult kind of radio program and, and was distinguished by having some excellent scripts. Yeah, Gunsmoke was a, a great radio show and it was an equally great uh, TV show because they had really uh, indelible characters, Chester and Matt Dillon and Miss Kitty and Doc. You know, they were really good stories. They were, it was set in the West, but they were really, again, character-driven. And they had interesting heavies and uh, un- unusual settings. We have two clips here of William Conrad playing uh, Marshal Matt Dillon that shows why it was a step above uh, the competition. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Yeah, but certainly more adult fare. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I once read a review of it when I was writing in New York at the Daily News, and uh, and I got a, 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 a I wrote a review of it, and uh, TV even the show had been a long time. And I got a note from Brooks Atkinson, who was the kind of uh, legendary theater critic for the New York Times, who liked my review, and he was a big fan of Gunsmoke, and he realized the dramatic content was was so was so so rich. Well, I, I love the anecdote you dug out that apparently the, that all radio shows had just a hell of a time getting the gunshots to sound right, and when they, when they, on, on, uh, they were paying attention to that on Gunsmoke, and they went like in Bill Conrad's uh, you know house up in like Laurel Canyon. And shot, in the canyon, they got, they got the right acoustics yeah. finally. Because it, if you shoot off a, a gun in a in a studio or a lot of places, it'll the I guess the, I guess the reverberation will will uh, you know uh, uh, it's too much for the microphone. Right. You get all kinds of problems but they had the, just the right acoustics finally they did it and yep uh, Bill, Bill, Bill Conrad's uh, backyard and everybody stole it after that <laughs> yeah right well actually we have a clip I can't resist it's Matt Dillon just walking with spurs on I just wanted to play that oh yeah yeah that's great Is there something wrong, Chester? Oh, there's going to be a fight up there by the stage office. You better come, Mr. Dillon. All right, what's the trouble? 
They're around back of the stage. You can't see them from here. Oh, who is it? A couple passengers. One's a great big man with red hair, about the biggest man I ever seen. Who's the other one? Well, I don't know, but he's kind of old and real thin and poor looking, like he'd been rowed half to death. Oh, that red-headed fellow ruined him, Mr. Dillon. The size of a man doesn't matter much to a six-gun, Chester. They ain't armed. Neither one of them's carrying no gun. Ah, then they won't get into much trouble. Well, wait till you see him, that big one. He's got hands like shovels, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, I can see him now. Oh. Well, that really really sets the mood. I, I talked to a sound effects guy who did the gun, the, some of the gun smoke gun, uh, sound effects, and they, they really took a lot of care with those to give them a real sense of reality. You hear those, as you say, that was a, that's a great idea, that, that clip with the spurs as he's walking down the, the wooden platform downtown. And, uh, and, and, but all the shows, were, that was a real art form. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a sound effects man. I, I guess I'd seen on TV or somewhere how they how they did a lot of the sound effects, and it's it's fascinating if you watch the guys doing it. Uh, it lives on uh, now only in you know in a big way, in a way on uh, Prairie Home Companion. Yeah, you know where they do the sound effects thing, and I don't like that because it's all just kind of featuring the sound effects, the sound effects rather than being part of a larger dramatic. Uh, you know, story. We did have Fred Newman on, by the way, in the show some years oh, back, did? doing yeah, uh-huh. doing oh, some yeah. of his famous stuff. He's quite quite a guy. Yeah, they're 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 really magicians in a way, but vocal magicians. <laughs> well, we have to note, talking about sound effects, the recent passing of, of Hyman Brown. He died at age ninety nine recently. He was uh, described in the obituaries as a pioneer of great sound effects. But you noted in the book that he was one of radio's uh, three great uh, theatrical geniuses. The other two being Arch Obler and Norman Corwin. Yeah, he was, and I got to talk to him. He was a, he was a crusty old guy when I was about 90 or so, and I talked to him. And Yeah, he was the creator of uh, many shows. The most famous was Inner Sanctum with the squeaking door, and he talked about that. And then a show called uh, uh, Grand Central Station, which which had the, the great opening of the, the, the train coming mm-hmm. to the station. And uh, he was involved in the creation of a show called The Goldbergs. I don't remember, maybe some others too, but those are three of the m- most famous well, I understand that he was the guy behind the uh, the revival in the '70s they had of CBS Radio Mystery Theater with E.G. Marshall, and I guess Hyman Brown was uh, was. That's right. That. That's right. It didn't last too long, but it was a great attempt to bring back old radio. Yeah. Good shows, as I recall. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were. We're talking about their memorable book, Raised on Radio, with its author Gerald Nachman. Um, we should do one more sound effect, maybe the most single famous radio sound effect: uh, Fibber McGee's closet. Tell us about that that famous effect. Well, it was the best example, most famous example of what we call sound gags, which were unique to radio. You know, mm-hmm. you couldn't transfer. If you transfer that to TV, it would be funny, but it wouldn't be as funny. It's the sound, the, the sound <laughs> of all that stuff pouring out of the closet, right. ending with a little tinkling bell at the end. Uh, usually, uh, and everybody identified with that because we all have closets that are kind of uh, <laughs> variations of that, not quite as extreme stuff mm-hmm. falling out. But and it was uh, it, it was it was just one of the little kind of a, a kind of a, a catchy thing that they that they held on to and became a running gag. And a lot of radio shows had running gags, and uh, in fact, most of the of the comedy shows had had all kinds of running gags. Jack Benny show especially, but uh, a good way to uh, to get a laugh quickly through identification. I think of Benny having to start his car up, and Mel Blanc would portray this ancient Maxwell car from like the 1920s, <laughs> and he got he milked that one pretty well. Right. 
right, and then uh, Mel Blanc is his uh, exasperated violin teacher. <laughs> another great example. Yes. <laughs> well, police shows were popular in radio as they remain today on, on television. And we keep talking about a lot of shows that had a dual life on TV as well as radio. I think we should do one more. Uh, one of my personal favorites, Dragnet. I mean, what an opening yeah. it had. That had one of the great, great openings. And, uh, you know, it lives on in the DNA of uh, Law & Order, I think, and a lot of those shows. The clanking sound at the beginning of the, or, the, or throughout the show, right. Law & Order, to separate the scenes. It's kind of inspired by, let's say, by, by Dragnet. And because uh, Dragnet had, had, had stuff like that. And it had Joe Friday, played by Jack Webb, was a, was a really unique character, very kind of a closed-mouthed guy and uh, very by the book, very conservative. Uh, he'd be thought of as kind of a right-wing law and order guy now, and mm -hmm. he kind of was. But it was a, it was the first, uh, not the first maybe, but the, the most famous of the now called police procedurals where it took you through how they actually, you know, solve a case. And that's what so many of these shows are now on TV. Well, let's actually run, run a bit of one of his uh, little sm uh, minor classics as he opens the show. It was Sunday, June 8th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of burglary division. Safe detail. My partner's Bill Lockwood. The boss is Captain Wisdom. My name's Friday. I was on the way back to the office, and it was 8.36 a.m. when I got to room 45, burglary division. Joe? Oh, hi, Smith. There's a note in the book for us from the captain about your partner, Lockwood. Yeah, what's that? Forgot to make that sick report on him yesterday. Did you call him? How's his leg? Well, I talked to him on the phone last night. Pretty bad ankle sprain. Doctor figures he'll be out for a couple of weeks anyway. Who's the fellow you got there? Suspect Jones and McCready picked up on stakeout, drugstore, third and Ventura. What do you got on him? McCready says they picked him up about quarter to five this morning. Yeah. He and Jones were staked out inside the drugstore. Saw this fellow drive up in the car, get out and try the front door of the place. Uh -huh. And he went around and back the place, tried the back door. Then he came around in front again, tried to jimmy the door. Finally gave up, got in his car and started to drive off. Jones and McCready followed him, picked him up and brought him in. Where's Jones and McCready now, do you know? Jack Webb, he really you know, set out to capture in Joe Friday that straightforward, you know, this is just real police work kind of thing, and he succeeds each time. Yeah, very grim. Uh, it's very grim work, a lot of leg work. You know, it's not romanticized right. at all, really at all. And it's, you know, you, many shows you would see them going door to door, talking to people and going into the lab and all that stuff. That was all new to, to cops and robbers shows then. Right, he wasn't whipping out a gun all the time. He liked, you say, going to the Hardly lab and talk to a guy. Right, fact, yeah. right. Well, I, I gather Dragnet had a number of actors that were making regular appearances. You do kind of hear the same voices when you listen to, to show after show. And I guess there really are not that many in the business who, who, who are good enough to, to make the cut. And I noted there were some, some film actors kind of were passing, uh, that got passing mention in your book, who, God, they were great in radio. Jimmy Stewart, Joel McRae, they, they, were, they were great radio actors. Widmark was a big radio actor before he got into TV. Yeah. yeah. Even Frank Sinatra had a radio show detective show called Rocky something or other. I can't resist injecting this one line you talked about raised on radio about the, the voices of people. William Conrad, you said, known as the man of a thousand voice. <laughs> great voice, great voice, always the same character, though, even on Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yeah, yeah, he had that wonderful hard-bitten voice. It was <laughs> so great for Matt Dillon and a lot of other characters. And he didn't get the role on TV because he's a little... You know, Fireplug-shaped guy, little <laughs> squat guy. Yeah, he didn't look like Matt Dillon, but James Arness did, I guess. So yeah. And Arness looked like 
looked like Conrad sounded. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. We're talking about like cartoons, uh, Bill, Bill Conrad did some wonderful narrations on Rocky and Bullwinkle. Hans Conrad was great as like Snidely Whiplash and other characters. Oh, one of my favorite uh, comic actors. And, the character, Hans Conrad, yeah. Well, you had such a great quote in the book. You quoted radio actor Gail Gordon, who was later Lucille Ball's foil on TV. He said about Conrad, he's an actoraholic whose idea of heaven would be to do a play with 30 characters and do them all. And you know, he might have pulled <laughs> yeah, it off. A of, well, a lot of them could. I mean, that was one of the great things about radio. It was uh, it could look like anybody. It looked like anything. You could, if you had a great voice, you could do all kinds of characters. And, uh, and there was one show in which uh, a male actor played a black woman. In the uh-huh. early days of Beulah, I think oh. it was played by a, a, a white guy. Amazingly enough. It, and then they finally found a black actress to do it. Uh, you know, it didn't take any costumes. You could come in a T-shirt and, and you know, Levi's and five foot four and play <laughs> uh, Matt Dillon. You could play any ethnicity. And, uh, you know, the guys that had the great voices were uh, were really in, in huge demand. Sure. A guy that later ended up, ended up on TV in his own show, The Millionaire, Marvin Miller. He was a man of a, really a man of a thousand voices. Well, to, speaking of great voices, we have to talk at some point about Orson Welles. A prodigy, made Citizen Kane at 25, thought of as perhaps the finest film ever made. He got this great RKO contract, apparently because of the notoriety of his, uh, his famous War of the Worlds broadcast. He was a household name at 23. It's thought of as maybe the most remarkable event in the history of radio. Let's, let's talk a bit about that famous broadcast. It was a show called the Mercury Theater of the Air, and the War of the Worlds was just one show he did one week, and it was about, you know, the invasion, the Martians invading a small town in New Jersey. It was announced at the top of the show, a lot of people don't know that, but I go into that in the book, about it was definitely identified as a, as a fictitious story. Right. But people that didn't get into the top of the show got in midway through or 10% into the show, and... And they thought it was really happening. It was so, so, made so real. People were supposedly running into the streets and so on. I don't think there were that many people that were that taken up, taken in by it. But enough people were that it caused laws to be written that, you know, that certain kinds of shows like that had to be identified periodically throughout to make sure people wouldn't know it was really happening. And, right. And Wells was one of the first, uh, as you say, he was a, a, tr- a true wonderkind. And he did, he did a lot of other radio shows with, he had, you know, that great voice. And and he'd done shows on, on Broadway before he even came to radio. And then he came to radio, as they say, I don't know, he's that quite that young, 23, that's amazing. And he did this series called The Mercury Theater of the Air, and War of the Worlds uh, was his uh, crown jewel, I guess. And yeah. Still remembered, still played, and uh, it, was, it really is part of American lore now. We, we, we play it about every other Halloween, a little the story, based largely on your book of, uh, of, of, of what went down between him and, and Charlie McCarthy and how people did come in late. <laughs> I'd like to put a plug in for the Museum of, of Television and Radio, which is in Beverly Hills and New York. I guess it's now called the Paley Center for Media. They've retained a lot of these classical broadcasts. I, I went there once and heard Orson Welles chatting with H.G. Wells circa about 1938. Some, some great stuff there. Well, I did a lot of my research at those places, especially the one in L.A., because it's closer. But, uh, you know, they have zillions of shows. It's really worth people going to and go back to the very early days of TV, the 50s. And I hope some people were going to take an interest in this and go out and obtain some of these programs. If people are so inclined, they can get some of these shows. They can order them on the Internet, and I hope people will do this. Oh, yeah. That is, uh, people don't realize you can order these as a, a, a big mail order company. This is the biggest, and it's called Radio Spirits. You can you can get virtually any of the shows that you would remember uh, through this 
through this company and, and online, and there's other companies too. I still listen to these radio shows on my little uh, cassette recorder in bed at night. It helps me go to sleep. Sure. It's just great to drift off to the sound of, uh, of Gunsmoke or, <laughs> you know, Burns and Allen or Jack Benny. Sure. Well, because I was fortunate to have read Raised on Radio years ago, Mr. Nachman, I, I traveled. I elected to travel down to Beverly Hills five years ago when the museum was honoring Norman Corwin at age 95. We were uh-huh. able to get a subsequent interview with him. What a privilege that was to speak with, with uh, such a legend. Yeah, I did talk to him on the phone, I believe. I didn't get, I should have gone in person. It's worth a special trip to, he's still alive, I think. Right? He's still alive and still sharp as a tack. or 102 or something? Yeah. yeah. Amazing guy. What is your memory of him? I was just quite stunned by how sharp he was and from talking about these things and, and, and talking about things you talked about in the book, these, these wonderful presentations he did. I think the most memorable thing that, that I have from him, I just want to pull from our very own archives, which was Corwin talking to us about being at CBS the night of the, the War of the Worlds broadcast. I'd love to hear that. that. Well, that's great. I had followed the War of the Worlds, that Orson Welles broadcast, the Martian invasion. Uh, that immediately followed uh, Orson's War of the Worlds. I didn't know what was going on in the, in the studio beneath, directly beneath my own. And I found out later that Orson had emptied the living rooms of America and uh, that nobody could have heard my program. And I had a friend in master control whom I called the next day and said, how late did the calls keep coming in? He said, well, the last call came in at around two in the morning. And I said, that late? And what was the nature of that call? He said, well, it was from a, a man that was probably a truck driver in New Jersey. And uh, he, I said, what was the conversation like? And he said, well, he, he said, uh, is this the station that broadcasted that program about Mars? And the uh, master control man said, yes, it is, said wearily at two in the morning. He said, well, I want to tell you something, mister. My wife heard that program, and she got so excited, she opened the door and she fell down a whole flight of stairs. Jeez, it was a wonderful program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. Carmen was not alone in producing some, some shows that were really imaginative. Um, radio had several programs that were precursors to, like, say, The Twilight Zone. Can we talk about uh, Lights Out and its producer, Arch Obler? Uh, Lights Out was... Was and and is the last time I heard one of the shows. It's still a pretty horrifying show. Very scary. Yeah, uh, I'm surprised some of that stuff got on the air because it's really blood and gore. You know, some of it uh, is. Yeah, as much as you could do without seeing it. And it's it's pretty scary stuff. You listen late at night. <laughs> and uh, but there were very clever stories. And uh, Obler was another radio genius and uh, a truly inspired guy. There were a lot of them in radio. The, th- the thing about radio that forced people to be more creative than they might have been if they had had pictures is they had to create they had to create pictures with other all other kinds of sensory uh devices you know right. music sound effects voices that was the raw material and you and you had to come up with stuff to make people see these things in their mind and so it really forced people to be more creative than they might have been otherwise that's why a lot of shows that went to tv weren't quite as good because seeing it is it's 
it's, it's not as good as seeing it in your own imagination. Well, Hyman Brown, I guess, and others, uh, many others, talked about radio as, as a theater of the mind. And, and, exactly. And sci-fi also had a field day on radio. You talk about the show X-1, or Ray Bradbury wrote for it, Isaac Asimov did, Robert Heinlein, some of the big names in, in science fiction. Oh, yeah, it was a heyday for science fiction. I think it rose to its to prominence through radio more than movies. Let's talk about a couple of, as we close, a couple of non-newsmen who excelled in radio but maybe took it in different directions. Uh, you had a chapter on Ed Murrow and Walter Winchell. And, of course, Murrow still thought of setting reporting standards. Neither man was a reporter, but, but Murrow set standards that people are still looking to uh, that, you know, that, that are almost unachievable, whereas Winchell was kind of a, a gossip columnist. Can you talk about these guys? Well, you couldn't find two guys further apart, but they were all they had an equal impact. Uh, Winchell, to start with him, had a widely syndicated gossip column out of New York. And, you know, people lived in fear of this guy. He really had amazing clout. He could make or break people's careers. And he started out as a FDR Democrat and ended up a kind of a right-wing loony. During his heyday, which was like the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and maybe 50s even, he had a very powerful column, which then he went into radio and became twice as powerful on the air. He had a Sunday night show every sun, uh, for a half hour, I think, and I used to listen to it. I remember going to my grandparents' house for Sunday dinner and listening to the Winchell show. And, uh-huh. uh, and he had this, in, this staccato speech pattern, and he used, again, he used sound effects. He used a teletype in between each item, which was a great uh, audio way of creating the idea of three dots on the air. And he had a very, uh, you know, very pronounced, as I say, staccato way of speaking, kind of uh, Cagney-esque in a way. And he had, and he had, and he had the goods. He had a lot of good items, and you know, and he, he had a lot of power. And he was feared, and he, he he did a lot of people in as well. And he could make a career. If Winchell was toward the bottom, uh, I, I guess Murrow is exalted as uh, as a pinnacle of great radio reporting. And, and he, he again used sound effects. He started as a London correspondent for CBS, and uh, he would report on the scene, and you could hear the the, the, the flames, fly, planes flying overhead and bombs dropping and God knows what. And he was out there reporting on it, uh, kind of the way we're used to now from watching it on TV right. from Iraq and uh, Vietnam or wherever. But he was the first to do that, and he also had a real conscience, and he became the conscience of CBS. And he had this wonderful, wonderful, sonorous voice. It was kind of the voice of doom, voice of God, you know, and he, he carried a lot of uh, credibility because of that voice. And so, again, these were two guys who really were talented in very different ways, but they, each of them had great voices, and you needed great voices to survive in radio. And uh, Murrow... You know, was a great reporter, but he also had a had the demeanor and and the sound of a, a significant guy, which he was. Well, we we tried to pay tribute to Murrow on this show. We we had Daniel Shore, one of the last of his hires, on. We had oh, yeah. uh, Richard C. Hodlin on. We had Bob Edwards to talk about his book on on Murrow. Oh, great! Wow. But uh, but I hate to admit it that after reading reading your book that. In a way, we're also more Walter Winchell because he apparently, as you described, would lay out clippings all over the table in front of himself as he'd do the broadcast, and he'd pick one up and talk about it, pick the next one up and talk about it, and by God, I hate to say it, but that's that's usually how we do this show. <laughs> sometimes you have to scramble, you know, and uh, he, and he was he was working on deadlines sometimes, you know, he wanted to be first with everything, like like all reporters, right? So he was uh, his 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 stories are very interesting story if you want to read about it. There are a couple of books, several books about him. 
Well, you talked about him. He gets a pretty good fair play in your book on Ed Sullivan, too, because I guess those guys had quite a feud. They did. They couldn't stand each other. Uh, Sol- Sullivan was very jealous of, 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 of Winchell's fame because they both worked on the same newspaper in New York. And according to Sullivan's, anyway, version, uh, Winchell did something behind his back. And, and so Sullivan never could not stand the guy, but he admired him as a newspaper man and as a columnist, and he was very jealous of Winchell's fame because Winchell's column was much more syndicated, and Winchell's radio show was hugely successful. And Ed Sullivan tried three or four times to start a radio show and never fa- never made it. He didn't make it until he went to TV, and then the tables turned. <laughs> Sullivan had the huge TV show, and Winchell tried to make it on TV and didn't. And then they, they kind of made up at the end when they were both old guys, uh, grand- grandfathers exchanging photos of their grandchildren. Well, as we wrap up, I, I gather you've attended some conventions of people who keep these radio programs alive. Are there, are there any in Northern California in the near future, or in California we know about? or uh, None that I know about up here. There's a, I guess there was, it's called Spurtback. Are they still around? I don't know. It's the Society for the Preservation of Entertainment, Radio, Drama, and Variety. And they, they had chapters all over, and they had conventions every year. I went to two or three of their conventions, and uh, and they had a newsletter, but I don't know if they still exist or not, because, you know, people that remember old radio don't exist so much any, anymore either. But if you look it up online, I, I'm going to do it when I hang up, because I don't know if they're still around, but it's a great organization. They have okay. conventions that can buy artifacts and old, old stuff from radio days. Well, we've only touched on a handful of the programs that are in your book. Our listeners are going to have to get a copy if they want to learn more. Uh, before we conclude, maybe any other words you want to say about some of the other programs or performers that we, we've, not, uh, we've not touched on? There's a chapter about uh, announcers, the guys who deliver the commercials. And yeah. that's an aspect of, that we could talk about for a minute. Uh, yeah, I, I tracked down some of the announcers because their voices, again, voices, voices, voices. Right. You identified certain shows and certain products with certain guys' voices. And uh, guys like Ken Carpenter and oh, Art Gilmore, there's a whole host of them. I talked to many of them for, for my radio, uh, yeah. for the radio book. And I can hear a voice now on a radio show, and I can tell you the show that they announced they were the announcer for sure. and, and what the sponsor was. They were really good guys. And uh, Fred Foy, the famous voice on The Lone Ranger, later was on TV. He became Dick Cavett's announcer. Cavett, a few times, would have him come on, and uh, they put the camera on him, and he'd do the, uh, the Lone Ranger opening. And he, right. was a, he was a wonderful guy. He, I, I don't know if he's still alive. He might be. A lot of these radio guys, they, they live a long time because you know, they have they, great, strong voices. And they may look old, but when they start talking, their voice sounds, you know, 40 years old. And the only one thing I would note that is a little bit painful about listening to old radio is how many damn cigarette commercials, how many cigarette oh, companies yeah. were sponsoring the shows. That that makes some of it hard to take. With Yeah, Lucky Strike, Jack Benny, uh, Chesterfield. That was one of the less uh, savory aspects of, all, of old radio. Well, I, I hope that our discussion today will inspire some people in various radio stations. I mean, KNX had their drama hour in Los Angeles. It was a wonderful thing. They took it off after, after 20 years, but it'd be easy for someone to, to restore back to the air, and I, I hope somebody will. It would be great to have it back again. Uh, just, uh, there used to be guys who, did, who spun old radio shows on, on, on radio and, you know, 20, 30 years ago, but they're all gone, and I don't think they exist anywhere anymore. We're going to talk to people at the station. I think someone, you know, should should take an hour and, and do some of this stuff. You uh, should do it. Well, <laughs> you, you know, you, you know, you know it. You know it all, and you know where where to find stuff, and you've got a, a great sense for it. By God, I'll give that some thought. We'll talk to some yeah, people. Yeah, you should. All right. The the book is raised on radio. Mel Gussow, the New York Times, said there have been many books written on the subject, but none I know of that's written with such verve 
and joyful sense of rediscovery. So uh, I, I really can't encourage our listeners uh, strongly enough to go out and get a copy of your book, Mr. Nachman. Thanks so much, Doug. I really appreciate it. People who have a fondness for that era and grew up with it, will, I think, will like the book. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. All right, we got plenty more. Stay tuned. Listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents X minus one, 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 one